was good jazz fans welcome to jabber jazz your home for ad-free utah jazz basketball content from a fan's perspective and with an analytical emphasis i'm your host adam bushman thank you so much for joining me along this ride and today we're talking the state of the utah jazz everything from the status of the picks we have in this upcoming 2023 draft to the nucleus of this future team roster building uh, march madness notes the works we're going into it all today and we're happy to have you along if you like what we're doing we'd appreciate if you would subscribe to the podcast here on the platform that you're listening right now be that youtube or a podcatcher of your choice it would also be a big deal if you would consider following us on twitter at jabber underscore jazz or you can find me at adam underscore bushman And leaving a review or a comment is also an amazing way for us to know that you're out there, for us to connect and jabber even more jazz. Well, without further ado, let's jabber jazz. All right, so let's dive into the state of the Utah Jazz. Jazz are at 34 wins right now. 538 projects them for 39 wins on the season. Uh, Currently, that would put the Utah Jazz in the 10th spot in the lottery or just outside the play-in tournament. So this is pretty interesting because if we look at the season, what's been super interesting is that the middle class of the NBA has just widened and expanded like crazy this year. And I'm actually thinking that this is one of the side effects of the playing tournament. Now, part of it is a good thing because by the playing tournament flattening of the lottery odds, the goal was to discourage the tanking that we saw uh, similar to the Sam Hinkie Philadelphia 76ers of the process era. The idea was to make that not a viable strategy because you weren't assured the number one pick just by being the worst team. So that has actually worked. You see far fewer legitimately tanking teams. You know, they're far less interested in just rolling out G League level players uh, on every night and shooting for sub 10 wins on the year. Right? Even the worst teams that we're seeing now are going to be uh, in the 19 to 25 wins, something like that. But the other side effect is that, in my opinion, we're kind of discouraging the best teams from treating the regular season as as a serious endeavor for one of those top seeds. Because it's so hard now to miss the playoffs if you're one of the best teams, the regular season has kind of been rendered optional. And so what you got is you got this expanded middle class of the of the NBA and we're seeing it right now where uh, you know you're a stone's throw away from being in the playoffs or ending up dropping right out of the out of the play-in altogether and so this is making it really interesting as we as we trend toward the end of the season I'm definitely going to be bringing up this topic about the expanding middle class and you know the good and bad side effects that it's kind of had on the league. I'll be talking about that another time. But suffice it to say, everybody's really bunched up and it's going to make for a really entertaining close to the year. So the Jazz are now projected to be number 10 in the lottery order. 
If we also look at the other picks the Jazz have, currently Minnesota is projected for 41 wins, and that would put them in a four-way tie for that number 13 uh, spot in the draft order. Now, Minnesota is really interesting as well because they have uh, kind of a seesaw schedule. They've got some easy games. They've got some difficult games. But, but really, we're getting kind of to the point where Minnesota can't necessarily control its own destiny because the other teams being so neck and neck, uh, they are able to jostle right around Minnesota as well. So, uh, oh, and then finally, the Jazz have the worst pick of Houston, Minnesota, or excuse me, Houston, Brooklyn, and Philadelphia. That pick is projected to be 28th in the lottery, in, in the order. So the Jazz will have 10, 13, and 28, as is projected by 538 at this moment. So what's going to complicate the this pick status and, and the com- competitiveness thereof as we trend toward the end of the season? Well, the first big one, in my opinion, that is going to complicate things are the injuries that are plaguing the roster for the Minnesota Timberwolves. Car- uh, Anthony Edwards two nights ago went down with a bad ankle injury uh, it was it was looking like he would be out indefinitely now they're starting to see some reports that he's out of the walking boot he's kind of on a day-to-day basis it's honestly two extremes two wild extremes for an ankle injury and uh, I know that things can progress very quickly uh, things could turn downturn really quickly ultimately we'll kind of see if you remember Kelly Olenek was out for a good stretch uh, with an with an ankle injury, so we'll we'll ultimately see and and it's possible he's not exactly the same player when he comes back. If you remember Donovan Mitchell's ankle injury suffered towards the end of the year, um, that we ultimately beat the Memphis Grizzlies and lost to the Los Angeles Clippers. So that's going to be a really really big complication because he's been a big force for the Minnesota Timberwolves. Carl Anthony Towns continues to be out with that calf injury for the Minnesota Timberwolves. Now, they they keep saying that he's close, but there's still not a day-to-day status or questionable status on the injuries report. So it's still looking like it's a handful of games out. And one thing that Jazz fans know pretty clearly about Mike Conley is that you know he had some real plaguing injuries or plaguing injuries specifically with the hamstring and that is not quite flared up but he just played 40 uh 40 mid 40s minutes i believe against the chicago bulls in a loss then played in a back-to-back game against the toronto raptors kind of feels like they're really stretching the bill when it comes to conley and um if I would bet that there's a, there's a hamstring flare-up that, that's coming here pretty soon. So that's going to impact things a lot. If if Minnesota continues to see rotation members of theirs uh, get out due to injury, uh, this stretch to end the season is going to be really, really difficult for them. They've already dropped that Chicago game. Uh, without Anthony Edwards, they dropped a game in in Toronto. So it's going to be really interesting how they handle things going forward. And they do have several games upcoming against those that they're neck and neck with. So it's going to be interesting to monitor those injuries and how it affects uh, how it affects their close to the season. 
Some other complications are the Utah Jazz plan, how they approach the end of this season. So we saw in the Boston game that everybody uh, who, uh, everybody outside of Colin and Jordan Clarkson essentially suited up and, and played, played lights out. And we're seeing some questionable injury statuses for uh, Laurie Markkinen for this upcoming game tonight. So what's kind of the interpretation? We've seen kind of this seesaw uh, back and forth, available, not available, out, questionable to all of the players in the rotation on a nightly, nightly basis. So my interpretation is that the Jazz plan is ultimately to decide on player status immediately, uh, immediately in the day before, before the game. They're looking at player health and kind of trying to look for any kind of little excuse to say, oh, hey, you're not, you're not 100%. Okay, well, let's keep you out then. And they're balancing that with the, with the quality of the opponent. So take the other night against Boston, for example. Quality of the opponent, off the charts. Yes, I know they were missing a handful of guys. Still, uh, Boston is a, is a quality, quality opponent. And you had the Utah Jazz, who I think most people were feeling 100%. So they're like, hey, those two things jive. Even if we've got our full roster, Boston's likely to beat us. But here's the thing. Upon tip-off, Hardy and the guys are going all out for the win. They are doing anything and everything they can to get that win, as probably they should be. Here's the thing, though. This is this is unique and and difficult because because essentially you're you're only controlling your fate to to an extent and uh, we're going to talk about this in a second but that's kind of how I've interpreted what the Jazz plan is that they're evaluating the quality of the opponent and the injuries and ability to go that night and then once the tip-off happens they're going all out for the win so some other complications are going to be the additional tanking teams in this rate race portland and indiana have both rested big portions of the rotation uh, they haven't been playing well recently and they're even considering shutting players down like we've seen a report about portland just shutting dame down for the rest of the season those are those are things that would basically immediately say that those six and seven spots in the draft are pretty much locked up by those by those two teams, and so starting to feel like seven and probably even more so eight is kind of the ceiling for this for this Jazz team. Now the other thing too is just time for some of these other teams look at the los angeles lakers and lebron james lebron james he is trying to get back um, after some plantar fasciitis he's trying to get back with the team and they are trying to make a playoff push trying to get into the play-in at least and the question is do they really just have enough time do they have enough time enough of a foundation to pull that off similarly the new orleans pelicans have been free falling with zion uh, Williamson out and Brandon Ingram uh, really playing some of his worst ball that he has in quite some time. Do they have enough time to kind of get things together? It, it's a big question. So with all these other teams around the Jazz, around the Minnesota Timberwolves, in flux, 
potentially going either way, that puts complications on where the Jazz, the Utah Jazz picks will end up landing. So here are kind of some of the takeaways from this pick status discussion. Uh, ultimately, the only real way that we can ensure competitive draft position is by employing our strategy. Now, here's the rub. We decided to employ our strategy extremely, extremely late. It wasn't until after the trade deadline and I think like five to eight games post-trade deadline that we really kind of started leaning into this strategy that I've interpreted of evaluating player status uh, in correlation with the quality of the opponent um, but before the game tips off. It's also being complicated because none of the other teams kind of in our range, with the exception of, of the Los Angeles Lakers, but even then you might say that that's questionable because they're, they're, they're just not available. No other teams have a Larry Markkinen, a Walker Kessler, and a Will Hardy. It's just really hard to take when you have those three and they're available as often as they are. Uh, you see Portland, they have... They have Damian Lillard, but they don't have that 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 running mate, and they certainly don't have the, the quality of coach that the Jazz have in Will Hardy. So it's just going to be really really tough for the Jazz to get in that competitive draft position because of our inability to control our own destiny, in a way, and all of these other factors that are complicating the matter. But I guess the kind of the main overarching question with this whole pick status and where things fall is, does it really matter? I think kind of first you have to evaluate. I think first you kind of have to evaluate if the jazz were in the seven and 10 spots, number seven with the Utah pick number 10 with the wolves pick. That's technically still in play. The really eight and 10 are, are, are more reasonable. But let's stick with 7 and 10 for the purposes of this discussion. It would require like two it would require like two wins the rest of the way for the Jazz to to get to 7. And you're probably talking three wins to get to 8, but let's stick with 7 and 10 again to to really evaluate if that's more of if that's more worth this this all-out exercise to really ensure only two wins the rest of the way, we got to look at the combined probabilities for what outcomes and compare them to what number 10 and number 13 would be uh, that were kind of projected at by 538. So at 7 and 10, you're winning the lottery 11% of the time. That means Victor Wembanyama. If you have 7 and 10, you win the number one pick 11% of the time. Okay, if we were to simulate this 100 times, you'd be right at 10, 11, 12 of those situations getting that number one pick. Well, what do the top four, top three teams, or in the lottery, or I guess the worst three teams, worst three record teams, what do they get? 14%. Wait, so if we're at number seven and number 10, we're only three percentage points off of the three worst teams, that's how big of a deal it is. Now compare that to if you're at 10 and 13. Your odds go from 11% down to 4%. It's a big deal. That is a big deal. Similarly, if you're at 7 and 10, you have a 46% prob 
probability to jump into that top four. 46%. Compare that to the 52% that those top three teams in draft probability, they get 52%. So we're talking Detroit, Houston, San Antonio. They're getting 52%. If Jazz are at 7 and 10, we're getting 46%. That's just insane, insane value. That's just great value. Now compare that to number 10 and number 13. If we're in those spots, we have a 19% chance to get into that top four. 19 versus 46. It's a big difference. It's a big difference. Now also consider the ranges of draft prospects here. If you're at number seven, you're right at the you're right in a good spot to capitalize on a high upside draft range. Uh, you're talking Cam Whitmore, Jarris Walker, and it's got some high volatility, right? Uh, we're, we're starting to see people devalue Amon Thompson a little bit. You're starting to see Osar Thompson slip into six, seven, eight. It's possible if it, you're at seven, you have, you have the pick of two of these three players, Cam Whitmore, Jarris Walker, Osar Thompson. Now compare that to number 10 and number 13. Right there, you're kind of in a draft range where the talent is about the same all the way into the late teens. That's your Grady Dick, Kaysen Wallace, Jet Howard, Taylor Hendricks. Now we might like a lot of those guys, but they're not quite the prospect level that you're getting at 7. And ideally, it would be incredible to pair at 7 and 10 one of... Osar Thompson, Jarris Walker, Cam Whitmore, with someone you could find, you know, in the 10 range. So that's why this is kind of a big deal that the Jazz aren't able to really get to that 7-8 range very easily without, without really ensuring only two wins the rest of the way. Now that gets tough because we were favored in some matches, there's some pick'em matches, and really I don't know if you can ensure only two wins especially because of all those complications. You're going to either have to sit all your best players. You're going to have to hope that Portland and Indiana are trying. You also have to hope that Minnesota and those injuries, not that we hope that injuries persist, but that you're, you're going to have to hope that, that uh, Minnesota is affected by injuries to an extent that they continue losing and that the Los Angeles Lakers, New Orleans, Chicago, that they're still trying as well. It's a lot to ask. And it's frankly disappointing because it's frankly disappointing because uh, right now um, the, the Jazz won't be gaining much by winning, making a play-in game, maybe making a playoff series. Frankly, those those items, those checklist items, uh, they only afford us so much. Um, like, are we really, really excited because Larry Markkinen got some, some play-in run last year? I mean, we probably shouldn't be very excited, but we would be this year. If you remember, the Cleveland Cavaliers were in the play-in game last year against the Brooklyn Nets and almost took a game. Are we really excited about that? Because supposedly we would be really excited and there would be all this experience gained if they got a playing game this year. 
you see, that's just a peg that I wouldn't be proud to hang my hat on, um, as opposed to maximizing the talent pool that is available for next year's team and then really, really going for it next year and beyond. This is just one of those unique years where... Um, this is one of those unique years where we're uniquely poised to asset accumulate and really, really expand that talent pool that we have because next year and beyond, as I've said in multiple occasions on this podcast, there really isn't room or reason to tank after this year. And even this year, we're really trying to do like a quarter season tank, if that, because most of the year was really trying, figuring out what we have, balancing the roster, and then trying to showcase some of the guys for a good package at the trade deadline. I mean, why even have a high pick? I mean, we've, we've seen online, and probably in some of the conversations you have with, with some family members or friends, that, oh, hey, you know, a top pick doesn't guarantee you anything. Like, you know, the Jazz have found players you know, in the in the mid lot in the uh, middle of the first round, we found players at the end of the first round. Look at where we found Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert. Let's just get those picks. Well, here's the thing: the reason you have a high pick is that you depend on the fewest possible teams to miss, to incorrectly evaluate prospects. At ten, you're basically saying, "Hey, we need nine teams to miss on a prospect." so that we can get one. Or you're saying there's nine, there's at least 10 guys that could make this big of a difference. I mean, so that's why you want a high draft pick. Again, think of some of the, the horror stories that we've seen in years past, you know, talking San Antonio Spurs. Remember they trade uh, away Kawhi Leonard? They get an all-star back? They get a young big back? They get a, a draft pick back? They have all these draft picks over five years. They take seven first-round picks, ranging anywhere from, I believe it was 9 to 30, and they picked who they thought was the best player in every draft. Where do the San Antonio Spurs sit now? They lost their all-star. They lost. They ended up training their, their star, you know, or not really star, but their young, promising big man, Jakob that they traded for. They made several selections. Some were lucky, like um, Keldon Johnson at 30. Some didn't quite pan out, like uh, uh, like what's his name from, from two, two drafts ago. So, it, I mean, it could be a crapshoot. And they depended on a lot of teams ahead of them misevaluating draft, uh, the draft prospects. And look where they are now. That's kind of what I'm. I, I kind of want to hedge against. Like let's let's get out of a, in front of several teams, not depend them to misevaluate, but bet on and trust our ability to find the best prospects. Is kind of my thought. But I guess the last question is, what's the impact? Like, say you're at ten and thirteen versus seven and ten. Like, well, wh- how does this really impact us? Well, it doesn't mean the Jazz won't be good. Just like for San Antonio, didn't mean that they weren't good, right? I mean, they they got to a playoff series. They completed in the plan, right? They had an all-star in, in DeMar DeRozan. They had a lot of good players. But again, they were just, they were just good. Now, being at 7-10 doesn't 
or being at seven and ten doesn't mean oh now we're championship contenders. Being at ten and thirteen doesn't mean oh now we're you know stuck in purgatory. It doesn't mean that the Jazz are still going to be good. Jazz are still going to have plenty of avenues. Uh, it's it's just going to affect the ceiling. It kind of means that. It kind of means you have to hit home runs other places. You know, this could be a home run at 7 and 10. Maybe you hit a home run at 10 and 13. But where are the odds kind of pointing you? Right? you? Many of us filled out our March Madness bracket. And most of us took some of those top teams to go all the way through the tournament. Doesn't mean they will, but they're the better pick. Right? Frankly, Arizona was the better pick to Princeton. Yeah, they went to bed, but that that was the better pick. Like we play that scenario out a hundred times. Sure, yeah. And maybe Princeton wins twenty of those hundred. And one of those twenty ended up playing out this past weekend. But it doesn't mean that Arizona was objectively just the wrong pick. No, they were objectively the right pick. It just didn't didn't turn out so again it's going to kind of affect the ceiling a little bit and it doesn't mean the jazz can't hit some other home runs like we're going to talk about soon and uh, totally kind of uh, hit the ceiling we all want them to it's just kind of one opportunity that uh, that isn't contributing to a high ceiling outcome um, isn't likely contributing to a high ceiling outcome, and therefore you have to kind of uh, do other things to try and hit that. So that's a little bit of where the picks are lying, some of the complications that will go into where they end up uh, falling, um, kind of takeaways, some some evaluation of where the where the picks could could go with some of the upside and kind of what it means for the franchise if we do or don't uh, get to a certain range. Uh, hopefully you found that valuable and we'll see kind of where the Jazz end up as they, as they trend toward the end of the season. All right, let's talk a little bit about the nucleus that we have on this team, kind of this this young core that is that is the foundation we're trying to build on in the draft and free agency and and in trades. So let's first chat Larry Markinen. Man, the dude has just had one of the coolest seasons. He's got the best combo of dunks and threes in the league, and that really only rivals Kevin Durant all time. It's really really incredible, and he has a a real chance to be. At like 98% of the totals in dunks and threes that Kevin Durant put up, uh, it was a little less than a decade ago now, uh, back when he was with the Thunder. He really, really had some some spectacular seasons from that perspective. I think that kind of really makes you the unicorn. If you're able to dunk uh, that often and make threes at the rate Lowry is, that puts you at such a high floor in efficiency that uh, is really, really, really hard to to beat the other team. It's really, really hard. So what a season from Laurie. He's already starting to get some all-NBA buzz, which is awesome, um, which that might honestly be another complication for, for the tanking or for sitting him out is that, hey, 
you know, he has a real shot at All-NBA. He's, you know, one of the favorites for the Most Approved Player Award. Like, he's had just such an awesome season. And, you know, it would be really awesome if it came to fruition in some of those those award honors. He's definitely had a top 15 season. But one thing I was arguing on Twitter the other day is that a, a top 15 season doesn't mean you are a top 15 player. Now, this was accentuated by The Ringer coming out with their rankings for the NBA players. This was updated here at the start of March. And The Ringer put Larry Market at 28, which frankly, that is a big deal because I don't think any of us thought we were getting a top 30 player in the trade. Trading away Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell, even when we knew the packages coming back, nobody would have anywhere close to thought we were getting a top 30 player. To have a top 30 player, a top three rookie from this class who's going to be on the all-rookie team, and having this amount of flexibility in free agency with our cap space, uh, three picks in the upcoming draft, and many more picks there beyond, like the Jazz are in such a good spot. Kind of no matter what happens, they're in a good spot. Uh, we just want them to be in a great spot. And so that's why we're kind of grasping for, for any little advantage, even in the draft order that we can. Um, but if you look through that list on the ringer, ultimately my perspective is that you kind of need to do it a little longer than a season for us to really know what kind of, what kind of year you had. I think kind of the best example is Julius Randle two years ago. Julius Randle two years ago was on fire from three, hitting all his mid-range shots. New York got to the four seed, uh, played Atlanta, totally fizzled out in the playoffs. But Julius Randle, I believe, was named to an All-NBA second team. The very next year, he was talked about as one of the worst contracts, as uh, a cancer to the team. New York City fans um, turned on the Knicks and specifically made Julius Randle the scapegoat. It was really, really ugly. Now Julius Randle has kind of bounced back, but not to all-NBA level. See, that's an example of where just just because one season was, was elite and excellent doesn't mean that you are that player for sure. Now, it's a good thing that we have single-season awards because, frankly, Larry's having a top-15 season, and I do think he's deserved of all-NBA buzz. I think he's deserved of a, of a most approved player award. But I look through the list that the Ringer put out of those that were ahead of Larry, and you see names like Pascal Siakam. He's, he's done it way longer than Larry has. Um, Tyrese Halliburton. Uh, he's even done. He's even been at the level he is currently longer than Lowry has been at his level. Jalen Brown is just better than Larry Markkinen. Uh, Demontis Sabonis. I think Larry has had a had a slightly better year, but Sabonis has been at this level for like three to four years straight. Um, Trey Young's having a down year. Larry's having a better year than him, but kind of when you look at you know the past three years, I mean, Young took his team to the to the conference finals. I mean, Young has, has played at, at an elite level for longer than Larry has. Um, so, 
for Lari to get to that level, he's just going to do it a bit longer, in my opinion. Now, there's there's kind of some debate on where that line is, and I don't really have it perfectly nailed down, but I kind of think it's 120 to 180 games. Um, you're talking like uh, one and a half seasons to like two and a quarter. If you're at one and a half seasons and you have that consistency of, of being that top 15 player, okay, I, I think it's time for you to be a top 15 player. The other thing is if you are a bit inconsistent about it, kind of the Julius Randle type, but not quite that extreme, but maybe like the Trey Young kind of level since this season has been pretty inconsistent for him, lackluster. If you're, if you're kind of that, maybe it takes you know two seasons and a quarter something like that, the 180 games. But I do think you kind of need to do it a bit longer than a, a single season. Now, if Laurie comes back next year, he's putting up 27, 28 a game on similar efficiency. He's doing a little bit more creation on his own. Uh, he's, he's basically 103% of what he was this season. Like, yeah, it's probably not any more than a half a season before, okay, he's just a top 15 player. Like, it just is what it is. Um, and, and it shouldn't really take away from Larry Markkinen's season where he's trending. Um, really, even at 28, like, you're still kind of in the top six, five, six percent of the league. Like, that is incredible. And the Jazz got him in combination with just a, just a, insane package of players and picks as well. So those are some of my thoughts on Larry Mark and what an incredible season he's had. Let's shift gears to Walker Kessler. Drafted 22nd. He started over 30 games this year. He's a top three rookie season. Um, I know that Jalen Williams is having an awesome year in Oklahoma City. Thunder Benedict Matherin for the Indiana Pacers has been pretty good. Um, Jalen Duran. um, has has been awesome for Detroit as well. So like there've been really good seasons uh from several rookies and still Walker Kessler has had kind of a top 3 rookie season. Um he's not going to catch Paolo Bancaro in the rookie of the year um in the rookie of the year race and furthermore he's not on the level um production or or you know, long-term prospects, high upside. He's not on that same tier with Paolo, but it doesn't matter. Like, that's never what he was billed at coming out of college. And it's not, it's not what you, what you're asking. It's not really what you're asking Walker Kessler to do anyways. So it would, back in early December, someone asked the question of where does Walker Kessler kind of rank in, in, the NBA for starting centers. Now, remind you, he had not started any games yet um, back in early December. Uh, he hadn't started any games with playing just 16 minutes a game, but he was really showing out, and you could see, oh, hey, he's he's got to be starting here soon. And and I was definitely championing that that argument. But early in December, I went through a list of the top players for each team in minutes played at center. So I went and did such and came up with the list of 30, and I put them all into tiers, tiers one through four. 
as you can imagine, uh, Nikola Jokic, Joel Embiid were kind of in that top tier. Then you had guys like Bam Adebayo, Rudy Gobert, DeAndre Ayton, Brooke Lopez. Then you kind of have the next tier of like Clint Capella, um, uh, guys like... Um, Oh, I'm trying to think. Guys like uh, Ivica Zubac and others. And then that kind of final tier, you kind of had your uh, your Nurkic, uh, your Plumlee, uh, those those kind of players. So when, when I did that back in December, I said, okay, Walker Kessler is in that tier four. And that ended up being kind of like the bottom ten of guys in the league. Now, I couldn't say for certain he was worse than than any of those guys. And I couldn't say he was certainly better than all of the group. But uh, but that that was kind of like, that was kind of really awesome for early December, not having started any games, just playing 16 minutes. That's pretty awesome to be in the bottom third of starting centers in the league. That's pretty freaking amazing. Now, fast forward until now, just uh, over the weekend, someone asked the question again, like, hey, where does Walker Kessler rank among starting centers? Well, now the conversation's different because, like I said, Walker Kessler's played uh, 30, uh, 30 games as a starter. Over the last 25 games, he's played every game as a starter, and he's been at 28 minutes a game. Like The discussion is quite a bit different now. So I went through and decided to rank them all again. So I got the uh, total minutes played for the top centers of every single team. And I decided to put them into tiers. So let's go through it really quick. So in first tier, Embiid Jokic. Say no more. Number two, I put Bam Adebayo, Miles Turner, Rudy Gobert, Brooke Lopez, um, Jared Allen, Al Horford, and DeAndre Ayton. Now again, this is the top player in minutes played who is slotted at center so if you haven't really played a lot this season you're kind of not going to be on the list also if you share a lot of minutes at like power forward and center then you may not make the list either but those are my list two guys list three or tier three you've got Ivica Zubac um, you've got Steven Adams Clint Capella you've got Wendell Carter Jr. Dwight Powell Nick Claxton Tier 4, I put Nikola Vucevic, uh, Mason Plumley, Alex Len. I put uh, uh, Thomas Bryant, Christian Coloco, uh, Mike Mascala, Yusuf Nurkic, James Wiseman, and uh, Hartenstein. Can't remember his first name. So those were the 30 centers, uh, or the 29 centers. Where is Kessler? I think he's a, he's a Tier 3. He's a Tier 3 for me. I can't say he's worse than Everyone in that group. I can't say he's worse than Dwight Powell, Wendell Carter Jr., Clint Capella, Steven Adams. But I can't say he's definitively better than everybody like Nick Claxton and Evita Zubac. Like, certainly he's better at several things than those guys. I can't say for certain he's better than all of them. And I have to be certain he's all of them to put him in Tier 2. Now, he could be Tier 2, you know, by mid-next year. It's 100% possible, right? If he's... If he's playing 32, 34 minutes a night, the Jazz are, you know, back to, you know, a uh, above average to top 10 defense, that type of thing, and he is just balling out. Like he'll be in the tier two, you know, quickly, right? He went from, okay, he's a rotational backup center to, okay, he's in the tier four of starting centers. Okay, now he's in tier three of starting centers. Like that puts you right about an average center. 
frankly. So you've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine guys in tier one, two that are definitively ahead of you. And you've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine guys who are definitively worse than you. And you're kind of in this awesome tier of seven guys who are right at average starting centers. I think that is an incredible place to be 70 games into a drafted 22nd uh, ranked rookie uh, in in his first year. I just think that is really, really amazing. So big props to Walker Kessler. Love the guy. Uh, he's doing awesome stuff. All right, Oshai Abaji. He's been performing really well of late, um, showing some expanded skills. Like he's... You used to see him do just straight line drives. Now he's got a little bit of some motion to him. He's got got some um, you know bi-directional abilities. He's you know demonstrating a little more of his handle. Um, he's also shown some movement shooting. A play just the other night against Boston, where he came around a screen and he got the ball one dribble pull up into a three and buried it. Like stuff like that is just really impressive. Like it's it's showing showing some real improvement he's also finishing at the rim a bit better uh a while back i think it was in the miami game uh you know he still made makes some mistakes and doesn't quite know everything to do but he's also got some really good defensive activity like he's he's just really showing some awesome stuff we see that he's gaining confidence of where to be and what to do if you remember early in the season the dude was just you know running track from corner to corner, right? You'd go to the corner, stay there. On defense, run back at his guy. Then on offense, run back to the to the same corner. And and maybe if somebody tells him, he'll switch corners, right? That was kind of what we saw early in the year. Whereas now, he's he's floating reacting to the defense in the corner to augment and capitalize on how the spacing and how the defense is shifting right in order to be correctly positioned for the ball handler on the weak side and to create the most distance away from the opponents and kind of keep them guessing to where they have to recover Um, he's also setting screens he's cutting with more purpose like he's just he's getting more confidence in where to be and what to do it's great uh, so far for the year, he's at 37% from three. And that's nearly 150 attempts. Over the last, uh, I guess since that Sacramento game at the start of January, he's at 39% 126 attempts. Um, before the season started, I said kind of in an average scenario, you had um, Oshai Abaji, who was an average shooter. You know, he was a 36% shooter, which is what he's at for the for the season, 37%. Uh, but he's demonstrated a little bit more than that, which is great. Uh, I think he's going to be a 38% shooter next year on some pretty good volume, um, especially if he's going to be in the starting lineup, as is uh, kind of being hinted at. Tony Jones of The Athletic is saying that the Jazz are really high on Abaji. They definitely feel he's part of this core, part of this nucleus. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean he's going to he's off the table. He's off limits. Uh, in packages it just means they see him as a piece that is going to going to be used for their next um, their next contending team whether that's on the team or as part of a package or or so on 
Um, they, per Tony Jones, they see him as a two, and so the Jazz are leaning towards a three in the draft. So this one is really, really interesting because uh, if Oshai Abaji is at the two, you know, you're six six, good wingspan, good athleticism, um, and and ability to hit the shots, and he's showing some some propensity to do some things uh, off the dribble. So that would be a really, really awesome number two if the Jazz can, if he can continue to develop, and at 38% on some good volume in the starting lineup next year, uh, I'd I'd be pretty excited to see that. So that's Oshai Abaji just just developing, doing some good stuff. I'm really excited for an off season with the Jazz training staff uh, with some targeted focus. Again, even that's why I'm not. St- like all that disappointed if we don't make a play-in game or a playoff game. Um, I would hate for people to to define the success of the season by a loss in the first round or a loss in the play-in instead of just saying, hey, we had an insanely competitive year despite, you know, a laundry list of items that kind of held us back. Let's get to the let's get to the off season. Let's train, let's develop and get some more talent on this team and then really go for it with with a thought and a strategy day one. Uh, I'm a little more in favor of that. All right, let's run through some March Madness notes really quick. Uh, so Kaysen Wallace. Uh, of Kentucky. He showed everything in the Kansas State game over the weekend. Uh, Defense, creation, finishing, toughness, uh, even shot making. Uh, He's not a high upside guy, but he's the type of guy who coaches will really trust. uh, And he's got just a great foundation. He's just got a great foundation in everything. I think you're going to see him, you know, be in late game situations. I think you could see him start, you know, right out of Right out of being drafted, like I just, I just think that he's got a really, really solid foundation and everything that's going to make coaches trust him, and going to make him be in late game situations immediately. You put him on the Jazz team, their defense gets a big bump immediately. I mean, you put Kaysen Wallace and Oshai Abaji in the starting lineup, man, with Walker Kessler and Larry Markinen, that is, that's some pretty exciting stuff. Grady Dick of Kansas. Uh, you saw the contrasts, frankly. You saw him against Howard, where you see why he's a late lotto pick, um, hitting shots, snagging rebounds, defending. But then you see him against Arkansas, and you kind of see why the upside is questionable. Um, ultimately, he's going to depend on his teammates and his coaches to involve him in a scheme and leverage him in the scheme. Um, you, you saw that they really... They really wanted to get him into actions, but they didn't make enough effort to do so to get him free of his defender. So I, I think you kind of saw the contrasts, uh, but you put him on a good team. You put him on a good team who's got a good scheme and a, and a coach who's going to trust him and, and really leverage him. Uh, I mean, I think he's going to be good. Anthony Black. I mean, he, for Arkansas, I mean, he just absolutely locked up Grady Dick, made him a zero factor. And did so to such an extent that Kansas kind of just went away from any opportunity to get Grady open. I mean, you, you saw a play in which Grady came off a screen, came up into a three, and Anthony Black just navigated the screen and just blocked the three-point attempt. 
It's pretty awesome. Um, feels like feels like he doesn't quite have the leeway on offense to get his usage up, uh, and specifically really to score. Um, it feels like he's holding back offensively. Um, I think he needs a franchise who believes in him as a shooter and really encourages him to develop and, and take those outside shots. Um, I don't know if he quite has that that vote of confidence uh, at Arkansas. Jarris Walker of Houston. Now, um, Houston is really geared around Marcus Sasser, for good or bad. Um, they're really intent on leveraging Sasser and several of the other guys on the team. And Jarris is just kind of in a complimentary role. He he doesn't get a ton of touches, doesn't get a ton of shot volume, but he does impact things. Um, and you saw that in the game against Auburn. In that second half, he was a defensive nightmare. He recorded six blocks, and he was all over the floor, uh, made some shots in that second half. Now, his lines just aren't like crazy gaudy because he doesn't, he doesn't have the volume to, to get to you know a gaudy stat line. But I think if you put him in a situation where a team needs him to contribute offensively and will complement his defensive skills, I think he could be really, really awesome. Uh, like, you know, the Jazz are reportedly interested in a three. Now, I think Jarris Walker is more of a four, but Laurie Markkinen oscillates into the three quite a bit. I mean, you put Jairus Walker or Cam Whitmore plus Kaysen Wallace on this team, man, the defense would ratchet up to top 10 defense. Uh, I think that uh, there is some offense that long-term could be plumbed there. Uh, perhaps uh, Laurie Markin takes another step. I don't know. I just, that, you know, that makes me pretty intrigued. All right, Brandon Miller of Alabama. He kind of just morphs to whatever you kind of need. Against Corpus Christi, they really didn't need him to do much, so he, you know, he got zero points. <laughs> but against, uh, but against Maryland, he really shined on both ends, and I think that's that's a great sign from a star player who doesn't need to take a game hostage every night, but can say, oh, you know what, we're good tonight. I could just serve up the other guys. I could just play a complimentary role. I think that's pretty awesome. Nick Smith Jr. of Arkansas. I just don't really feel his impact. I don't really feel like he's taking control of games, that that there's really a, a sense of urgency from the defense when he's on the court, that type of thing. Uh, I think workouts will be pretty crucial for him to demonstrate what he's about, um, communicate the high upside that the team is kind of looking for. Um, Keontae George Baylor, he had kind of some duds in, in the tournament. Baylor lost to Creighton, so I don't really know what I think about Keontae all that much. Um, in my as I kind of create my board, he's definitely kind of trending down toward the the lower end of the lottery. I I'm just not super sold on him. But we also saw some nice showings from Terquavion Smith, uh, Derek Lively II, Jalen Huchifino, Derek Whitehead. Uh, didn't like Kyle Filipowski's showing, especially against Tennessee. Um, but overall, I think people had decent. Um, I think some of those guys in the late first round, they had some decent showings. <laughs> All right, now let's talk about some off-season questions really quick. So there's a lot of buzz about the Jazz. There's a lot of buzz that the Jazz 
being able to achieve their goal of contention, championship contention again in the 2025-2026 season, that's going to come via a trade, which kind of makes some sense. Okay, That's a short time frame if the Jazz want to draft a superstar, develop them. Now it can happen, right? If you draft the next Paolo Bancaro and they're like, oh man, they're a star that we need to round out the edges. Okay, that's doable by 2025-2026. But barring that, I don't know that you quite have the the ability to draft the next Larry Markkinen and wait six years for him to kind of turn into, into a star. So if if the if that's kind of the goal, the Jazz are pretty uniquely positioned to land that next available star. I mean, they've got all sorts of picks. They've got all sorts of flexibility, right? They could take a star into cap space this offseason, right? That type of thing. So who is that? A lot of people have posited that it's Luka, Luka Doncic, and the Mavericks are at a really real tip, are at a real tipping point with Kyrie Irving and Larry Markkinen only performing so well um, if that situation kind of blows up if Kyrie Irving moves on and the Mavericks are down another guy and more draft capital you know it could be a situation where Luca is really thinking about asking out soon um, but here's the thing with Luca and with a handful of others when they become ab- available they more or less pick their situation even if they have multiple years on the on the contract I think they kind of will just pick their situation and so I don't know if the Jazz can really get in on that type of player. Like, Luka's a top-five player. And I don't really know that that we can even land one of those guys. I know that we'll offer, like, eight picks for him. And the T would like to take it. I just don't know if that's possible when you have that much clout and you're that kind of a star to really, to really not be able to pick your situation. So, so that's that's an interesting one. But maybe it's... You know, aging superstars, Damian Lillard. Um, I've suggested Jimmy Butler. But truth be told, that's a pretty short-term approach. That's pretty short-term. Like, you're talking two, maybe three years in the case of Lillard. But even that third year in the case of Lillard, I mean, you're paying him $60 million, 37 years old. That's, that's, a, little, that's a little scary. Um, and it's going to complicate your ability to... Uh, extend Walker Kessler, extend any of the rookies that you have coming up, and sign Larry Markin into a max, right? So fans have a pretty unique list for who this star player is, right? When I was suggesting Jimmy Butler, a lot of the feedback I got was, oh, but he's not young enough. Oh, but, you know, he's... He's not really on the age curve that, that we want. Um, hey, we don't really have a lot of team control. Hey, he's a questionable fit. So, uh, hey, his health isn't quite quite right. So, like, yeah, we want age. We want him to be a star. We want team control. We want fit. We want them to be gettable, but we also want them to be healthy. It's just very, very hard to check every one of those boxes. If you check all those boxes, like, they're just not available. Those players just aren't available. So my personal theory is that some of those have to be fudged. And the player I've kind of zeroed in on who kind of fits this bill and balances all of these checkboxes in a way, I think it's LaMelo Ball from Charlotte. Uh, Charlotte is kind of in a really combustible situation right now. If we think back to the offseason, Miles Bridges, 
uh, gets caught up in that domestic violence issue and really kind of torpedo their season. Um, even, uh, even James Booknight, who they drafted last year, has had issues with the law as well. The culture there is really, really suspect. Um, they've just had terrible trash coaches. Um, and now Michael Jordan is looking to share, uh, sell his majority share in the franchise. Now, you could look at that for good or bad. I'm not really here to, to make an opinion there. But clearly it's a combustible situation. And say that they whiff in the draft. Say again that they, that they whiff in the draft and that, uh, that they have another really disappointing stuck-in-the-mud type year. I really think LaMelo Ball might be available. And I think he's a real, real good balance. I mean, he's super young still. There's tons of team control. Still in his rookie deal. Uh, I think he's a good, good fit with Markin and Kessler. What I need for those two is I need elite passing. And I think LaMelo Ball brings it. He's he's just insane in the full court. Uh, he's also a tough shot taker and maker. Um, he's also a good rebounder for a guard. He's got good size. I mean, you, you put him next to Abaji, you've got two guys who are 6'6", six, 6'7". Six, six, I, I, I like that a lot from your guard spots. So... He's, I also think he's gettable. Like, yeah, you're probably in the middle of a uh, DeJounte Murray, Rudy Gobert level trade. Like, probably three unprotecteds, one protected, or two pick swaps, something like that. Um, you could probably take him into cap space. Maybe you give up one. Maybe you give up some players, but they're not quite at the level we got in uh, Kessler, uh, Vanderbilt, and some of those guys. Again, the Rudy Gobert situation was pretty unique, but I think you're somewhere in the middle there um, for what it would take to get Lamelo. Uh, I think I think it's a possibility. That's that's the guy I think is the next available star who's kind of gettable for the Jazz. Now there are some other theories, and, and one of the chief being Jalen Brown. Buzz is that he, there's a little bit of discontent in Boston, uh, less so with the team and more so kind of like the city and situation in that, you know, he wants to start a business and supposedly hasn't been very conducive in Boston. He's also um, struggling to find housing. So I think there's just a couple things there that have been reported as some discontent kind of with the situation more so than the team. And if you look at it from the Jazz perspective, yeah, I, I could see some reasons why he might want to be here. Um, frankly, Ainge, Danny Ainge, was the GM at the time who reached at the number three pick to take Jalen Brown. That was a surprise pick. Uh, Jalen Brown was not mocked uh, at three. But Ainge took a chance on him and, and really believed in him from the draft. Um, reportedly, Will Hardy was his guy when he was a coach last year uh, for the Boston Celtics. I kind of think this requires a three-team deal because really I don't believe that the Boston Celtics are in need of a bunch of picks and some of our players. Like, frankly, they've got better players than we do, even on the fringes. And the Jazz, and any players that would be better, the Jazz just aren't interested in including uh, like the whole point would be to keep them and add Brown to them. So it puts a unique juxtaposition there. So I think a three-team deal is necessary. And I think there's kind of two paths. One is a really bad team with, with uh, a star player 
that that could be kind of uh, manufactured into this deal. So say like a Charlotte, um, Boston's like, man, let's get a little younger. Let's distribute the talent a little bit more. Uh, okay, let's get Lamelo Ball uh, on this team, and let's also get uh, yeah, let's get Lamelo Ball on this team, and maybe we bring uh, bring in someone else too. But uh, and so. The Jazz are offering up all the draft capital, and Boston is able to just kind of, sh- you know, shove Lamelo Ball right in, something like that. And then the the Charlotte Hornets get all the the pick capital that the Jazz want to send out. Jazz don't have to part with any of their good players, something like that. The other kind of situation is that you have a mega star, who the Boston Celtics want to upgrade from. Uh, Jalen Brown from Jalen Brown to uh, said superstar. So think like, okay, Philadelphia, they have just another, another nightmare uh, playoff scenario. Okay. Uh, James Harden disappears. Uh, maybe Joel B gets a little banged up again and the Philadelphia 76ers fall and fall. Maybe like to the Miami heat or something. And now all of a sudden James Harden is like, yeah, I'm really sick of this. I just want to go back to Houston. He he bolts to Houston, and now Philadelphia's staring at staring down the barrel of hey, we don't really have much draft capital. We just lost James Harden. We're aging really really hard, and we've got a ton of money tied up in Embiid and in Tobias Harris, uh, and you know all these guys. And Tyrese Maxey's coming up, and he's gonna need to be paid. I kind of wonder if that's the situation where the Boston Celtics say, oh, man, we could pair Joel Embiid with Jason Tatum. Uh, yeah, so they they tried to send out uh, Jalen Brown. In Philadelphia, even if you put Jalen Brown in, in on that team, they're still a ways off, frankly. And I kind of wonder if you say, all right, we'll take Jalen Brown. We'll send... Um, you know, you, you can have a young player of ours. You, you can have all the picks, uh, Philadelphia, and they kind of say, all right, we're taking all this draft capital, all this stuff. We're going to, to pivot around Maxi, and we're going to try to get into a better situation with our cap sheet um, and try to get younger, stuff like that. Those are kind of the two situations in which a three-team deal, and when I say situation, I don't mean those exact teams, but that kind of thing. You could see permutations with Dallas. You can see permutations maybe with the Los Angeles Lakers, whatever. Um, but that's kind of the situation, the two ends of the spectrum where I think a three-team deal might work. Um, it's still crazy long shot, honestly. Like The Celtics would not be very excited about, about parting with Jalen Brown, frankly. And that's why I kind of think that uh, Philadelphia situation might be one to watch from that standpoint. But I love the fit with Jalen Brown. I love the fit. Jalen Brown, uh, Laurie Markkinen, Walker Kessler as a front court. Uh, I love that. And frankly, Oshai Abadji at that too would be really, really awesome as well. So um, it's going to be interesting. A lot of offseason question marks. When do the Jazz kind of pounce on that superstar trade will be interesting. Um do the Jazz want to use their cap space, or do they want to punt it one more year? Uh, those are going to be some real interesting question marks as the offseason kind of looms, and it'll be really interesting to follow, so stay tuned.
All right, thank you so much for joining the Jabber Jazz podcast. We really appreciate you listening. And if you like what we're doing, we'd really encourage you to subscribe to the podcast, to our YouTube channel, to follow us on Twitter at Jabber underscore Jazz. Leaving a reviewer comment would be very appreciated so that others can find this podcast and, and enjoy some of the content that we bring. We try to keep it unique and try to hit some of the relevant topics. Thank you so much for joining. And as is customary here, we're going to leave you with some sounds of jazz. 